0: You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, bethelbible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Skylar, thanks for leading us in worship today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, All right, good morning. If you've got your Bibles, go to uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 13. We're going to get all the way to the end. And I'll um, I I'll give you two notes here um, at the very beginning. One uh, has to do with, um, I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. Uh, and they are the same, actually. Um and it has to do with, I'll tell you, you shouldn't really ever say this if you're, if you're public speaking. So if you're taking notes, how to public speak, don't do this. But I'll tell you this, um, I don't feel incredibly well this morning, fighting a little uh, nasal stuff and all of that. So the good news for you is um, I don't have a lot of stamina uh, today. Uh, the bad news for you, though, is uh, at some point in here, my voice is going to go and I'm going to sound like Darth Vader. And so you're going to hear this invaders voice all right and and the reason I say that is because the truth is the passage that we look at this morning is not a popular passage this is not a popular teaching this is not what the church has embraced um, for many years and I don't know why but it is it is the, the message that we hear in the church seems to run right across the grain of what it is that Peter's going to tell. So I'll tell you right now, this is one of those uh, sermons that um, it'll it'll clear the park. We'll have a lot more space next week. Um, but in all truth, um, I will say some things uh, that you might uh, be rebuffed about this morning. And um, But I want this morning, above all things, to seek a faithfulness to God's word as delivered through Peter. All right? And so that's where... We're going to be we're going to be talking about two things. We're going to be talking about our relationship as believers with the government, and then we're going to be talking about uh, we're going to be applying uh, Peter's words to our relationship uh, in the workplace as employees uh, with uh, people who have bosses. His his theme uh, this week and next week is going to be our submission to the authorities um, that are placed over us and what do we do and how do we do that and why do we do that, what does it, what does it look like? And so uh, w- with that, here's what I want to do, I want to I read 2 Peter beginning verse 13, I want to read all the way to the end of the chapter, I want us to hear it in context and then I'll come back and give you uh, a couple of cultural explanations. And then we'll, we'll walk through the application of the passage. That's the outline. So First Peter chapter 2, verse 13, it says this, Be subject, or um, submit yourself, same word, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and you're beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. It's the word of the Lord, as inspired by God's Spirit through the writer, the apostle Peter. Two cultural things I want to make sure we are oriented to before we uh, look at the detail of the passage. What Peter is addressing in this first section. So you might look at it as two sections, really three sections. You've got the first section, verse 13 through 17. He's going to speak about human government. In 18 through 20, he's going to address our relationships, um, uh, submission to authority, and the best application for us is in in a, in a workplace type setting. And then the third section, he's going to give us an example of Christ. But in this first section, Uh, Here, the human government, the institution, um, in Peter's day, it included an infrastructure. And at the top of that infrastructure was Emperor Nero. Uh, You also know aspects of this structure. There was, um, in Jerusalem, there was a governor at the time of Jesus' death named Pilate. Uh, in the northern region of Israel, in Galilee, you had um, Herod Antipas, and he served as a, essentially a vassal king under the, the pleasure of Nero. So to be clear, here's, here's what I want to say. I want to say Peter never cast a vote for a single ruler that he found himself under. No, no primary elections, no general elections. He never cast a vote. He was part of no political party, and Peter, he may have been a boy, uh, maybe newborn, uh, when Herod the Great, uh, who preceded the governorships of Jerusalem, when, when there was still a king in Jerusalem, Herod the Great, had all the children in Bethlehem killed. He certainly would have heard about that growing up. Peter grew up in the, reign, uh, in the region of Galilee under the reign of Herod Antipas, Herod, if you'll remember, is the one that chopped off John the Baptist's head, uh, Jesus' cousin. Because at a dinner party, his, his wife requested it. John the Baptist had been disapproving of his relationship with his wife. Herod's wife was offended and had his head chopped off. Herod Antipas is also the one that the night of, that Jesus is arrested and sent through the trials by night, He appears before Herod Antipas, who drapes him in a purple robe and mocks him. Peter witnessed the governor, Pontius Pilate, wash his hands of Jesus. He had Jesus Jesus brutally beaten. He handed him over to the Roman guard because he was afraid of the Jewish leaders, and Jesus was sentenced by Pilate to death on a cross. Then you have Nero, the emperor of Rome. He was born in A.D. 37. He died at the age of 31. He committed suicide uh, in A.D. 68. It, at 17 years old, he became the emperor. He reigned for 14 years. Um, he became paranoid about all the rumors um, and plots to, to kill him. And so in A.D. 55, a year after he takes the rule, he's 18 years old. He has his stepbrother, Britannicus, killed. In 59, he had his mother executed. Uh, his mother's the one that actually manipulated his his rise to the throne. He had her killed. In 62, he had his first wife killed. He also, um, his uh, His former counselor, his tutor, the one who taught him, Seneca, who's a first-century historian, he was forced to commit suicide. Peter probably arrived in Rome in AD 63, just after all that. But just before uh, the city of Rome itself was set on fire, uh, rumors were that Nero had done that. Rome itself by this time was already considered Babylon. It It was already being called by believers Babylon. It was it was viewed as a place that was so wicked and, and so um, counter the kingdom of God that they referred to it as Babylon. In fact you see at the end of Peter in first Peter five thirteen he says, She who is at Babylon, meaning the church at Rome who's likewise chosen, sends you greetings, as so does Mark my son. As I said, in July of 64 is when the fire happens. Uh, The result of that was that Nero shifted the blame, or at least found blame, in Christians. He had Christians crucified, fed a wild beast, um, drenched with oil, burned his torches in his gardens. If you lived in the Roman world, and you were a believer, you paid taxes that supported the construction of pagan temples... And funded unjust wars that's the world of government that peter that peter speaks into There's, and i would say this that there is not anything in our landscape that compares no, no matter what you think about our current elected president no matter what you think about the current Prospects of the next president or elected government officials. It does not compare to the world that Peter writes into. And so Peter's words are not less applicable to us. They mean just as much to us as they did the first century hearers. Now listen, I, I don't think the first century of hearers w- would have listened to this and didn't have any objections because Peter tries to answer the objections. He, he tries to hit them head on and, and so we'll see that. So that's one thing we need to be culturally oriented to The next one is this idea of servants or some of your translations there in the second section might have slavery and so we'd be wrong to understand the concept uh, in Peter's day as similar to slavery in the modern world. Um, Slavery in the ancient world was a social class. Uh, Historians believe the total percentage of the ancient uh, world, of the the Roman society, uh, the total percentage of slaves, somewhere between 25 and 40 percent of the population. uh, There was, in addition, extensive Roman legislation. It regulated the, the treatment of slaves. They were normally paid for their service. They could expect eventually to to purchase their freedom with their their wages. Nevertheless, the, the truth is, their service was involuntary. So, slaves were acquired in several ways. Sometimes they were acquired through war or kidnapping from foreign lands by the first century. Most slaves were slaves simply because they were born into the households of slaves. Um, abandoned children might be brought up as slaves. People could even sell themselves into slavery to fulfill their their debts uh, the, of their obligations. As such, so slavery in the Roman world was based more on social, economic, political status. It wasn't race or ethnicity. Their legal standing, the social standing, um, their their opportunity for economic independence were clearly lower than the Roman society at large, but very different than modern slavery. In fact, modern slavery, the slavery that we witnessed in uh, Britain and and America, uh, is is expressly condemned in the Bible. In fact, 1 Timothy 4.10 Paul lists this amongst the egregious things that he speaks of enslavers. Uh, One writer said this uh, the biblical injustice of American slavery comes down to two things working in tandem. It was a permanence, meaning there were complete legal barriers to to ever gaining your freedom, and it was purely racial, uh, purely a racial basis. So, a word stronger than servant but weaker than slave is probably what we need here. Something meaning semi permanent employee without legal or economic freedom, although servant probably comes the closest. There's, although, no English word that probably captures it all the way. You know, at the beginning of the study, we said that Peter's writing about our faith. Our, our gospel faith in Jesus. And, and not just an intellectual faith, not just something that we mentally ascend to or we think, okay, that seems logical. I, I believe that. It's, it's actually a real faith that lives out in the real world. And so Peter's comments today, they, they're very relevant for us. They inform us as believers when we, when we turn on the news. when we show up for work tomorrow morning. Peter's speaking to that part of our lives. So text saying some things. They're not hard to understand. This will say some things likely that that we don't like. So look with me again. I'm going to go back to verse 13. And thirteen and fourteen, here's the command. Um, Be subject or or submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or governor sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise to those who do good. The word submit or be subject, it comes from a Greek word. It's a military term. It describes the voluntary deference to the wishes of another. It, It means a conscious Willing subjection or a conscious, willing obedience to another's authority, and in verses fifteen and sixteen, he gives us the reason, and that he says, "This is for the, for this is the will of God. This is the ultimate reason. When, when you submit yourself to the authority of human institution, the, uh, the government." Appointed to bring order to society. The king who taxes you, the president who serves as chief executive of the federal government and commander of the commander in chief of the armed forces, the the policeman that pulls you over, the the laws that are uh, municipal and state and federal. We submit because it is the will of God. Peter's speaking about civil obedience for the purpose that Christians above all should be exemplary citizens in the world. And he says it so that we silence the ignorance of foolish people. It means that believers would give no cause in our citizenship to be charged as rebels. That that, that whatever attack on Christians that, that may come, Christians would live as exemplary citizens, so, so that the attacks would be revealed at the end in, in, in the end of the day. Under the light of scrutiny, they'd be revealed as unwarranted, un, unwarranted attacks. That the motive of those attacking, that, that the motive of those in power attacking Christians would be revealed. Their motive would be revealed as hatred. But that there'd be no objective. Thing to point to as a claim for the attack or the mistreatment or the persecution. And so in verse 16, while on the one hand we're we're free, we are. We're God's own possession. We're citizens of a heavenly kingdom. The the world has no power over us. We would not use our freedom as a cover up for for evil. We, we We would not digress back into the state of rebellion. See, we were saved out of rebellion by God. So we do not, therefore, live in rebellion in the world, but as servants of God. So then Peter's going to take it another step. In verse 17, he says, Honor, honor all people. So this isn't merely just be subject or submit yourselves. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. So, so love the brotherhood. We talked about this last week. We, we, we get that as believers. The, Jesus said in John 13, the way they'll know you're my disciples is by your love for one another. It's how we demonstrate most clearly to the world around us whose we are. Love the brotherhood. And the fear God bit. We, we get that. We're working that out in our lives. But we know the, the awe and the reverence and the fear for God who is our creator. But it's what becomes at the beginning of that list and at the end of that list that, that give us pause, isn't it? So to honor means to show high esteem, to show reverence. So... In how we speak, in how we think, in our attitude, our, our actions. So he says honor uh, to all people, honor all people, everyone. He, here's the reality. There is no one on this planet. Let me, let me be more specific. There is no one in your life that is not owed esteem. Because you're a believer. No one is not owed esteem. We we don't submit to all people. That's not what he said. That that wouldn't be appropriate. We we don't fear all people. We we fear God. To fear people wouldn't be appropriate. But it's the recognition that everyone is created in the image of God Genesis 1, 26 and 27, we find that reiterated even after the fall in the genealogies of man. Thus we honor all people as such. Now what about this bit, honor the emperor? It means to esteem, to respect him or her for the position he or she is in. We, it's not fear. We don't fear. That's for God alone. So, so we are free from fear. We're, and in being free from fear, we are free to honor. We, we don't lash out as those afraid. We don't lash out as those insecure. We don't lash out as those who are being wronged. We honor as those who are free in how we think and how we speak and our attitudes and actions. We show the highest respect for leaders of our land because of the position of authority that they hold. My daughter is in the fifth grade. Which means she's in school with a bunch of other fifth graders. And interestingly enough, fifth graders actually talk about politics at the lunch table. Now, there's not very many fifth graders watching CNN or Fox News, or hope there's not many listening to the talk radio. They might get four or five minutes on the way to school or back, right? But it's amazing how many opinions they have. You know where those come from? You. and how you think, and how you speak, your actions and attitude, you honoring those that have been placed in authority above you to the degree that your children would know to honor. Now, let me say this. It does not mean that we must be silent in the face of evil. It does not mean that we do not call moral atrocity evil. We do not say abortion is evil, that the killing of babies is evil, that it makes no sense, that it seems we have more rights to life for animals than we do human beings. It doesn't mean we don't say that. We do say that. We must say that. But we do not do it with slander or with sword. We do it respectfully and with reason. And at times... We may employ civil disobedience, but to be clear, civil disobedience is not Peter's point. If we jump straight there, we jump out of this text. I I want us to be faithful to this text. We must hear this teaching this morning from Peter. So should you vote yes, do that. Step into the booth. Early voted this week, stepped in and way more things to vote on than I even was prepared, and 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 just had to pray, Lord. I this is in your hands. Exercising a right given in the infrastructure of government that we had, I'm exercising it. I pray it has effect. I pray your will be done. Don't, don't do that unprayerfully. We're believers. Campaign, sure. Be respectful. Show honor. Some other passages for your consideration. In Genesis chapter 9, 1 through 7, we see the establishment of human government by God. It's human government in the initial form. It is after the flood. Noah and his family have been saved in the midst of God's unleashing of His wrath in a worldwide judgment. And then the relationship with Noah as creation seemingly begins again. God now delegates for, for, the, for the purpose of the protection of human life. He delegates, he ordains the human governing of protecting human life to man. God, God required a reckoning for murder. that the, the reckoning would be carried out, not by God himself, but the reckoning would be carried out by a fellow man. So, so after the flood, God delegates the execution of his wrath in history in history to mankind, for social order to deter the wickedness of man. And the government then extends to the forcing enforcing of law that benefits the societal good. It, it doesn't mean that rulers will not abuse this delegation. They have, they they do. but government is established for order. What is? good for society. Anarchy says, what's good for me? That's what I put first, and then no matter what the cost to anybody else. Listen, even a bad government is better than no government. That's played out through history. Second passage to consider, really place in Scripture to consider, is uh, the The book of Daniel. There are more places. I'm just skimming across the top here. But in Daniel, Daniel uh, declares to Nebuchadnezzar. Who, who, by the way, there's no one on the landscape today that we would compare to Nebuchadnezzar. But in Daniel 2.21, he says this. uh, Speaking about God, he changes the times and the seasons. Daniel's saying this to Nebuchadnezzar. He removes kings and he sets up kings and he gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He's going to go on a few verses later in an interpretation of a dream to Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, you, O oh, king, are king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar, you're king. But the God in heaven made you king by giving you kingdom, the power, the strength, the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of men, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over all of them. Nebuchadnezzar, you're you're king, but you're king because God said so. In fact, he's going to go on later in the interpretation of another dream. Daniel explains God's dealing with Nebuchadnezzar this way. He says, He's going to deal with you this way till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. Let's fast forward to Jesus. Give you one. Example, John 19, Jesus is standing before Pilate. Pilate said to Jesus, will will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus, don't you know who I am? You know what Jesus says? He answered him and said, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water. In the hand of the Lord, he turns it wherever he will. I'll give you one more passage. and uh, If you've got your Bibles, I want you to turn there. I want you to see it. It's Romans chapter 13. Paul is going to address the same thing. He's writing to the church in Rome. And the church in Rome is ground zero for Emperor Nero's rule, and he says this in Romans 13, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. I don't even I don't have to interpret that for you. Paul's pretty clear. Therefore, whoever resists authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. This is generally speaking. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what's good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. often thought, Paul, you could have written all of this and not put that there. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. This goes all the way back to Genesis 9. Therefore, one must be subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this you also you pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. It is a curious thing what Paul says, isn't it? So I take it that God not only establishes the forms of government, whatever they may be, but also sets the leaders in place. So here's a couple of principles. That well, They are two-part. Uh, the call to civil obedience. I think this, given... All of these things and putting them together, believers should not adopt a sky is falling mentality. The candidate or government that sees most, seems most wise to them is not appointed to office or the place of rule. The sky is not falling. How we know or do this thing we call the church might be subject to change. But I'll tell you, in different parts of the world, in environments far more hostile and full of more persecution, the church seems to thrive there Secondly, believers must be careful to declare. Be careful of this. I've heard it. I've heard it a lot. And people say, well, this is God's judgment on this nation. Or whatever version of the statement you might use. It, there is a day when God's judgment will be exacted. It will be when his son comes with sword in hand, and all the nations that rise up against him will be defeated. Revelation 17, 18, 19, and 20. Careful that we do not speak about America as a covenant nation or in special relationship with God. Careful. No warrant for that. And I know I hear people quote Second Chronicles chapter 7. We rend our hearts, we repent. God, I mean, it's not for us. It's a promise to the nation of Israel. They they actually are in covenant with God. Not political Israel. Nation of Israel. The church is in covenant with God, but we are not a nation. We do not have borders here. Careful how we speak. Careful what we declare about someone. Don't, don't be guilty of confusing our opinions or our wisdom with God's will. I'd say this. I think Peter is helping his readers understand. Rome's not the center of history. It lasted 1,400 years. It's not the center of history. We we, we might take that out to today. America is not the center of history. The the center of history, the the apex of history, all all of history leads up to and flows from, not Rome, not America, but to a cross, a death, a burial, a resurrection. The, The meaning of all history culminated in a weekend outside of Jerusalem. Not in a regime, not in a dictator's reign, not in an election year, in a weekend outside of Jerusalem. All of history points to it. All of history flows from it. Until the day Jesus returns. The end of what we know or speak about as history And eternity begins. I got a few more. See if I can't completely run you off. Four. A godly response to governments—not an either-or, but a both-and. As believers, we have responsibility to government, but we have a higher response, higher obligation to God. Believers should be both involved in government to the degree that you can be. and Realizing, though, there is a bigger picture when we discuss government, that it's God's provision of grace and His program and His will is displayed. We, we aren't looking for temporary messiahs. Give unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, give unto God that which is God's. If God's behind a government, then those that oppose government and would overthrow it are really opposing God. That's what Paul says in Romans. Lastly, I would say, though, Christians aren't to accept everything government does is right. The rightful place for government, all government, whether it recognizes it or not, is under God. God's the one that establishes authorities, and because of that appointment, Leaders, rulers, elected officials have ultimate responsibility to God. And all leaders will stand account to God. Hebrews chapter 13 makes that clear. What about civil disobedience? There is a way that we stand against government that reeks of our flesh. Pride, arrogance, anger. But there's a way that we can stand against government, honor God, and be the aroma of Christ. Two examples from the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 4 in Acts chapter 5, Peter and his cohort are being told that you cannot preach the gospel. You you cannot speak in the name of Jesus anymore. Peter and John answered them in chapter 4, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you or rather... Then to God you must judge. For we cannot speak, but speak of that which we have heard. He said, listen, if it comes down to your giving us a choice, we've got to obey you or we obey God, it's an easy choice. And we're willing to suffer the consequences of obeying God. They do it again in chapter 5. They come, they say, we strictly charge you not to teach in his name, but Peter and the apostle answers, we must obey God rather than men. God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. And we're the witnesses to these things. We must speak about it. There's two other places, uh, both from the book of Daniel. It's not the only places. They highlight it most clearly. Daniel 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego bow down in idolatry and worship Nebuchadnezzar. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, look, we... We've been taken into exile. We've lived here. We've done what you said, but we cannot do that. We will suffer the consequences. Thrown into the fiery furnace. You know how that goes. And Daniel in chapter 6 is tricked in the same way. Can't pray to God. You have to pray to Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel Daniel prays to God. He gets thrown in the lion's den. You, you might not be saved from the fiery furnace. You, you might not not get eaten by the lions the point is we, we must at the end of the day obey God our greatest value as believers is not our freedom it is the glory of God this so leads me to the second piece and this is very quick I will read it I'll give you one illustration and then I'll point us to the end submission to employment. This may be more specific. Be subject to your masters in all respect. Not only the good and the gentle, but the unjust as well, even the bad ones, even the bad bosses. It's a gracious thing when mindful of God, when one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. What credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it? You endure. You deserved that. But when you do good and suffer for it, if you endure, it's a gracious thing in the sight of God. The best picture of this, probably, to boil it down to a picture, is uh, Bob Cratchit. You know him from Dickens' A Christmas Carol? He's a poor man with a large family to support. And he has the boss to beat all bosses, doesn't he? Underpaid, underworked, but only gives Scrooge his goodwill. In fact, there's the scene at the Christmas table. He raises a glass. To Mr. Scrooge, I give you, Mr. Scrooge, the founder of this feast. His wife is none too pleased with that. She will drink to it, not on the sake of Mr. Scrooge, but because she honors her husband. Assured that he'll be merry no matter what. Listen, we cannot opt out of obeying masters. We being good employees just because our boss in our eyes seems wicked or is disreputable. We cannot exempt ourselves from doing what a master says, even if a master is wicked. That is not the reason. Now, if you're in a difficult work situation, let me say this. You're not a slave. You can leave that employment. Find a new job. You have that freedom. You're not bound there. But it's not an excuse to do a poor job while you're still there. You must honor the employer with excellent service. and must not speak bad about him. As long as you take a paycheck, you work honorably. Submission to a bad employer does not mean you throw in the towel and adopt bad practices if they're they're there—dishonesty, shady dealings. You don't do that. And if it's time for you to go, then get going. If you're in some place you don't need to be, you're not doing the job you're hired to do, and you're only there because it's safe and comfortable or pays you too much. It's not a reason to stay. Passive aggressiveness doesn't honor the Lord. It's wicked. You're in a place where you are not trusting God. Verses 19 and 20 says, this is the reason. We do it for the grace. It's It's not unnoticed by God. The point is, the credit he speaks about, this is future reward. It's not unnoticed by God. It honors him. It pleases him. It demonstrates your hope, as Peter's been telling us, that your hope is on the horizon. It's not in the circumstance. Suffering, in other words, as one guy said it, it's not a detour by which believers receive the inheritance which they're called. It's God's appointed means for receiving the inheritance. Then he gives us the ultimate motivation. If you noticed at the very end of this, he... Peter never gets too far away from the gospel. He here picks up the gospel from Isaiah chapter 53. You've been called to this because Christ suffered for you, leaving you as an example. You might follow in his steps. You ever read Charles Sheldon's book, In His Steps? That's where it comes from. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He was not reviled. He did not revile. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins and his body on the tree that we might die to sin, live to righteousness, by his wounds you've been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. When Peter says entrusting himself, he's actually taking Isaiah's language of delivered up and Peter saying he entrusted himself. He speaks of Jesus' own surrender for our sin, not his. Peter was there. Answered nothing to the mockery of his enemies, the taunts of the thief who he was crucified with. He must have remembered all too clearly. Jesus silenced before the high priests as they hurled insults and beat him. See, Jesus not only showed submission to his father's will, he showed confidence in his father's righteous judgment. He submitted because he had confidence in his father. but more than an example, he is our sin bearer. and the hope of the resurrection, Peter could promise the final healing of all the people of God. And he speaks of healing, listen, not by the hands of Jesus, but by the wounds of Jesus. His wounds heal our suffering at the root, at the place of our sin. So when we endure suffering, it's not this bitter legacy of meaninglessness anymore. It becomes fellowship in the steps of Jesus. The pain that remains for us as believers is not the penalty of sin. It's, It's the pain of sharing the place of Christ and suffering. The pain that remains is Christ's calling to follow in His steps. Maybe this morning, you... Find yourself in a place you consider the fear you have of the changing winds of government. Maybe you find yourself in the dread of waking up tomorrow morning and going to work. But the hope you have is not in a political leader or the right political leader. Hope you have this morning is not in salvation by better circumstances. The hope you have is in the gospel. Of Jesus, whom one day very soon that the trump will sound and he will appear in all his glory. Every wrong righted, and every knee bowing, every tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. You get to do that today. When you bow there, confessing Jesus as Lord, you have no fear of anything else. If you would, would you bow with me? Father, uh, you've been gracious to us today. These are hard words from Peter to apply in our context. We are keen and well-versed on our rights. And so, Father, on the one hand, we thank you for all the rights we have, amazing freedoms that we have that we do not deserve did not earn by your grace we were born into them. So, Father, we do not take them for granted. And, Father, we give you thanks for them. And so, Father, however, we may feel that the winds of change may be blowing... Our hope is not in the continuation of any rights we perceive. Our hope is in your Son, who has saved us from darkness and sin and rebellion and eternal death and brought us into the light of salvation and reconciliation with you forever and ever and ever. Father, Jesus is our King, good and righteous, and forever. So, Father, it is in the freedom we have through your Son that we serve you by honoring everyone, including the Emperor. Father, we ask this. Help us. We can't do it in our own power, our own strength, or our own wisdom. Only from a heart changed by you. This is how we pray, and the only way we can, In the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.